Well, here we are again, and we're ready to study the Word of God. And we pray that God will move by His Spirit in our spirit, opening us up so we can really understand the principles that we are focusing on today. And what are we focusing on? Well, we are, I suppose we'd say, we're protecting ourselves from the seduction of the enemy. Now, seduction is a strategy of any enemy, especially in modern warfare. It's done with propaganda, it's done with spying, it's done with undermining, it's done with all kinds of threats and promises and cajoling. We know that. And that's the strategy of Satan himself against humanity, saved and unsaved, and particularly for believers. Believers are not immune from the wiles of the devil. In fact, that's what the Apostle Paul said to the church. He said, we are not ignorant of his devices. In Corinth, there was a lot of immaturity. On one side and on one hand, there was a great move of the Spirit where they became uh, uh, very strong in the Spirit of God. They became so strong that unfortunately their character didn't counterbalance the blessing that was in their lives and in their midst. Therefore, all kinds of things happened, all kinds of warped attitudes and outlooks. And that brought the church at Corinth down to a low level. Their carnality began to, I suppose you'd say, eclipse their spirituality. And that's something that Satan is very pleased about. He just wants you to, in some way, be beguiled, to be betrayed, and to be, in the words of Paul to the Corinthians, to be bewitched. That means there's a spiritual component in that strategy of his. He wants to condition us in order to seduce us, to undermine us, and to rob us blind of the great power of God that is operative within our lives and within our midst. Now, today we're going to go into a very, very, I suppose, familiar narrative of the Old Testament. As Israel moved through the wilderness, they were moving through to God's objective, which was the promised land. And all the way along, they encountered all kinds of battles and opposition and diabolical things that happened. They had, of course, a lot of battles to overcome, and this they did. But they also were sadly unaware that there was a spiritual aspect that Satan was trying to prevent Israel from coming into the promised land, just as he wants to prevent you and me coming into that land of abundance, which is a walk and a life in the spirit. He wants to spoil so that we in some way are just deflated and debarred from entering into what God has planned. And when the flesh triumphs over the spirit, 
And there's always that battle going on, isn't there? In your life, my life, we can tell all the time. The Bible says that the flesh lusts against the spirit and they are contrary. They fight against one another. This is to gain supremacy one over the other. Either the spirit of God wants uh, to have supremacy in our spirit, in our life, triumphing over the flesh, or the flesh rages and seeks to have supremacy over the life of the spirit. Who's going to win in your life? Who's going to win in mine? Well, it is a matter of choice because we make a choice and we say to ourselves and we say to the Lord, Lord, we want to go your way. Or we say, contrary to that, to the flesh, you can have your way. We will indulge ourselves. We will react according to our whims, our fancies, our lusts and our desires. So, Let's go into the book of Numbers. When we come to the 22nd chapter of Numbers, I'm amazed that the Holy Spirit, using Moses, the writer, highlights the tremendous battle that takes place from chapter 22, 23, 24, and into 25. It is a battle against Israel by the Moabites. And we find that as the children of Israel moved, chapter 22, verse 1, and moved and camped in the plains of Moab on the side of Jordan, just across from Jericho, which was the landing place. That was the entrance into the promised land. And though they could detect that their journey of wilderness wandering was over, and they could see the objective, which was Jericho, aha, what happens is the last battle is the harshest and the hardest. And you will find, as you get closer and closer to the Lord, that the battles will intensify. As you get closer to the goals that God has set forth in his word, and you're becoming more obedient to him, you're going to find all kinds of things rising up against you. You're going to have thoughts that you had never conjured up in your own mind. You're going to have all kinds of desires rising up within you that you thought were well dealt with. You're going to come into opposition from people you would least expect opposition from. Because, you see, you're near your objective and the devil stirs up. He stirs up people, he stirs up emotions, he stirs up your mind. He begins to whisper as he, the serpent, whispered to Eve in the garden. This whispering campaign is very suggestive and it begins to inflame our minds. And before long, the flesh takes over and amplifies the whispers of the enemy. Now, in uh, chapter 22, we find that the king of Moab is afraid. And it says here in verse 3 of chapter 22, Moab was exceedingly afraid. They were desperate. They were panicking because they were many 
And Moab was sick with dread because of the many that were the children of Israel. It is uh, suggested there could have been in excess of three million Israelites that were coming towards the land. And Moab just felt absolutely infirm, unable to counterattack, unable to prevent what they thought was Israel's intent, which was to destroy them. Now, the destruction of any one of those enemies throughout the journeyings was only if they opposed Israel and came out against Israel. And so the king of Moab decides that he will call upon a spiritual resource. And of course, we have a lot of questions when we find out all about Balaam, the prophet that somehow had, through forms of mysticism, even witchcraft, some have said he had a smattering of an understanding of God, and he had the works of the flesh and of the devil. So he was a mixture, uh, quite a mixture. But God superimposed his problems spiritually with a revelation to warn Balak, king of Moab, not to oppose Israel. Balak tries to get Balaam to come, and Balaam at first refuses and says, no, he won't. And he is uh, in his own mind sincere and says, I only do what God says. And so he has a general type of appreciation of God himself. And uh, then all of a sudden, over a period of time, Balak is able to cajole and to uh, charm Balaam, to bribe him, and to assure him that he will look after him and that, yes, he would be free just to be obedient to whatever he saw, believing it was from God. So Balaam goes, and he comes to Balak saying very keenly and very definitely, I'm coming okay, get this right, but I will only speak what God reveals to me. Well, that sounds okay, and he starts to prophesy. And at the end part of the 22nd chapter, right through to verse 12 of the 23rd, you have the revelation. And the revelation, the first one, is the fact that he sees that God is with Israel. And uh, the king says, hey, wait a moment, what's going on? What have you done to me? Verse 11, I told you to curse these enemies, and look, you've blessed them. You're honoring them. And you're pouring out all kinds of uh, positivity about them. Why don't you do what I ask you? I said, you curse them because those people and those nations you curse are cursed. And he says to him, that is, Balaam says to Balak, I told you what the Lord has put in my heart and in my mouth, that's what I'm going to declare. All right, says Balak, verse 13, chapter 23. Come to another place, another vantage point, and have a look and see there, and I want you then 
having made a burnt offering to the Lord, I want you to curse this people. Well, Balaam has got it right. He says to Balak these words. He says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind or repent. Has he not said and will he not do it? Has he not spoken? Will he not make it good? Behold, I've received a commandment, and it's a commandment to bless. He has blessed Israel, and he will, and I cannot, reverse it. No way. (laughs) And uh, he says there is no factor of iniquity in Jacob that God would, at this point in time, judge them destroy them, overthrow them, thwart them, prevent them from moving ahead in his will. There is no sorcery that I can use, verse 23 of chapter 23, against Jacob. No divination that I can use against Israel. So he then goes on to say, look, a people rises like a lioness, lifts itself up like a lion. It shall not lie down until it devours its prey. Well, that would have just about caused Balak to have a heart attack when he thought, oh my goodness, if we stand up against them, Israel's going to devour us. And Balaam adds to that that... (laughs) Not only will Israel devour the prey, it will drink the blood of the slain, meaning you will be totally and completely vanquished. So Balak says to Balaam, well, then don't curse them, but don't bless them. And Balaam answered and said to Balak, did I not tell you all that the Lord speaks that I must do. Well, he begins to sound very spiritual, but of course he's not really. He says, I just cannot curse that which God has blessed. So what is the outcome of that? Well, chapter 24 talks more about the same thing, that uh, God is going to bless Israel and uh, how lovely are their tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel, chapter 24, verse 5, and so on. God brings him out of Egypt. He has the strength of a wild ox. He shall consume the nations, his enemies. He shall break their bones, pierce them with arrows. Oh, this must have just about finished Balak. Then Balak's anger was aroused against Balaam, and he struck his hands together, and Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, and look, you have bountifully blessed them three times. Now get out of here. Go back to where you came from. I would have honoured you, but in fact, the Lord has kept you back from honour. Well, that's a distorted view, isn't it? So Balaam said to Balak, Did I not also speak to your messengers, whom you sent to me, saying, Even if Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord to do good or bad 
of my own will. Now, you know, let's just stop there. What a tremendous statement to make. Would to God, would to God that all of us who preach the word of God were exactly in tune with only what God would have us speak. Well, it says here very, very tellingly that after another exchange and a fourth prophecy, and certainly not in the favor of Balak and his nation of Moab, the Bible says that Balaam rose and departed and returned to his place. Balak also went his way. But though it's not recorded, it's obvious that Balaam said to Balak, confidentially and privately, listen, if you want to overcome Israel, you won't be able to do it by a full frontal attack. You won't be able to do it by force. You're going to have to beguile them, bewitch them, compromise them. And that's the way you'll undermine them and keep them from getting into the promised land and being the supreme nation, able to snuff you out in any battle that you undertake. And we find that this is the tactic that Moab takes, and it's in the 25th chapter. They invited the people, the people of Israel and their own people, to sacrifice to their gods and to enjoy a party. And Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. So through compromise, immorality, idolatry, that's what happened, that Moab was able to thwart Israel by polluting them. And worldliness and the world spirit and the worldly attachment that we have in the church and individual believers, that will bring us down all the time. It disempowers us. And that's why we've got to walk in the light as he is in the light. And we need to do that daily, hourly, moment by moment, issue by issue. We make a commitment, but we have to work it out daily in our lives. And so Paul, writing to the Galatians, saw that they had been beguiled. They had been beguiled by the legalists of their day. He writes very passionately to the Galatians, and it comes out very strongly here in the third chapter of Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. The centrality of the cross had been undermined. The power of the cross, the power of the Christ on the cross had been watered down. They were now embracing the law as well as grace. And it absolutely 
became a false gospel because we are saved by grace. We are walking by faith. We don't walk by sight and we don't feel and sense or know any justification by and through the law. Legalism is as devilish as any immoral sin that you can think about. You see, it's spitting in the face of the mercy and grace of God. And so here we have them being, well, the Bible calls it bewitched. In other words, Paul said there's a spiritual element here, not just the component of foolish Galatians being foolish. And indeed they were because they were opting out for a gospel that doesn't exist. It is not Christ plus the law. It's Christ fulfilling the law and it's Christ alone who saves, cleanses, forgives, accepts, delivers and brings us into sonship. Now, when we go across or back to 2 Corinthians, this marvelous church that knew the power of God. In fact, I, I like that very first chapter of 1 Corinthians that describes them. He says, you know, you are a powerful church, very, very powerful church. You were enriched in everything. That's in chapter 1 of uh, the first book and verse 5. You were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance and all knowledge. You came short, verse 7, in no gift. In other words, they were a gifted, they were a blessed, they were a remarkably miraculous church. Miracles and the moving of the Spirit was not foreign to them. It was familiar. But therein lies a problem. Familiarity breeds contempt. When we go over to the second book, we find here that there is a very telling statement in the first 15 verses of the second book, chapter 11. That's 2 Corinthians, chapter 11, 1 through to 15. Paul states very simply and straightforwardly and succinctly these words. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. And indeed, you do bear with me. He says, I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. In other words, I don't want you intermingling with the law. I don't want you haphazard in your faith. I want you strong. I want you devoted. I want you virginal in your faith and your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. But listen to the third verse of chapter 11, 2 Corinthians. I fear lest somehow 
as the serpent deceived, and I think the King James Version says beguiled Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted before, you may well put up with it. You're going to be in trouble. You're going to be burdened. You are going to be diffused in your light, in your testimony, in your capacity to be spiritual. You are going to be bound and you are going to be retarded. That's if you take on another spirit and another gospel. Oh, he said, whatever you do, just keep with Jesus. This beguiling, this this compromising, it's the same spirit that Balak and Moab used against the Israelites. And Christians are everywhere being beguiled to be a compromising people. And how sad that is. And so our lesson today has been simply that this attempt of seduction of the church by Satan and causes him to smirk and laugh and to feel that he has triumphed is through compromise. Compromise theologically, compromised doctrinally, compromised in discipleship compromised with the world, compromised by our mind and its limitations, compromised by our emotions and their strength. And what happens there? Well, as soon as we begin to live a life of compromise, we become confused and we become almost as dead as the unlearned and the unbelieving. You see, that sharp edge is taken from our lives. That's why we take the Bible. You know, I get very worried about, and I'm going to speak very plainly, I get really worried about people that know of all the doctrines that are going around, what this one says, what that one says, what this wonderful seminar said, and what that preacher said. Well, good on them. But let's keep to the scriptures. When did you sit down with someone and not just talk about church, trends, pastors, personalities, ministries, blessing? When did you get with someone and talk about the word of God? The word of God should be the mainstay and the anchor of your life. And when you stick with that, you will be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. That's why I love the Proverbs, because right from the very, 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 very first chapters of Proverbs and right through the entire book, we are enjoined to pursue wisdom, to pursue knowledge, to pursue understanding. But what of? 
the ways of God, the word of God, the principles of God and his word, so that we can adapt, we can respond, we can yield, we can give ourselves to it. And what will happen as a result? Maturity, strength, wonderful things will happen in our lives. I want you to be free of the beguiling influence of the enemy. I don't want you to become one of those that are simple. Remember in Proverbs and verse 1, the Bible says, when you turn away from me, when you turn away from wisdom and you live in foolishness, you will come into all kinds of distress, verse 27, and anguish, and that anguish will come upon you and you'll call on me. I will not come to you. You will not find me because you're living in a lie. You're living in a fantasy world. You're living in a beguiled kingdom. You have been compromised. You have been seduced and you have been robbed. Well, that's not you, is it? You're not going to go down that track. You're going to come with me on a journey pursuing God. And we will put him first. We will take the pages of this sacred book, the book of God, as John Wesley called it, and we will lift that up as the supreme and only revelation of the mind, the heart, the will, the purpose, the plan, the calendar of God. Great to be with you. Hope you'll be with us next time. <music> 